What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Today's interview is actually from an event where I had the opportunity to interview Arlen Hamilton, who's the founder of Backstage Capital. This is one of the most exciting interviews I've ever had the opportunity to do. She's someone who's a, she's an incredible story. She was homeless and built a VC fund from the ground up specifically to invest in people of color, underrepresented founders, underestimated founders. And I mean, just went through every kind of challenge you can imagine to get to the point where she is today, where she's now invested millions into hundreds of companies run by those founders. Uh, She talks a lot about how to find your voice, how she found her voice, uh, how to build more diverse communities, and just general advice for founders and for community builders that I know are going to really hit home for a lot of you. So without further ado, let's just dive in. Enjoy our interview today with Arlen Hamilton. So excited to chat. First off, congrats on releasing your book, working on a book as well. And I can't, I just, I know how much insane amount of work goes into it. How's, how's the response been so far? What are, what are the results you're seeing so far from the release of your book? The response has been really incredible. I knew that it would resonate with a lot of people just based on the conversations I've had over the past few years. And and when I post things, certain, certain things online, how it gets uh, shared because it does resonate. But it is something, it's like being cracked open in a good way, you mm. know, a sort of light coming out and being filled with that at the same time. You know, it's like there's no there's no hiding from anything. And I, I've been transparent for all most of my adult life online. That's just what I've done since since probably 22 or so. So I've, I've been used to sharing my world and my life with people and people. But this has just been above and beyond anything that I could have imagined. Hmm. Yeah. So that actually leads us right into one of the good questions that I want to dive into, which is you have such a strong voice. Um, I've been following you for a long time now and and your level of transparency, your level of directness and and your confidence in your voice is is really inspiring. You mentioned 22. Is, is that a age where you felt like you really found that voice or did you kind of always have that strength in voice? No, not necessarily. I mean, I was I was sharing myself, you know, since probably 16 it just wasn't online, <laughs> you know, it was so 22 adulthood is when I felt comfortable um, starting to like really be myself publicly in different ways. So I had a blog that was read by 50,000 people a month in, in most of my 20s and, and it kind of happened by accident and I go into it in the book, but it was basically a, a bad breakup led to it and doesn't it always. Uh, but no, before that, I think where I found it, like my mother would say to you that I had it since I was four walking into stores and telling people what was what. But I think I really found it in high school when when I would say things, I would stand up for other people. And I would realize they just simply couldn't say it for for fear or for, you know, something that they were going to miss out on. And I realized that I didn't mind being the one that stood out and being the one that wasn't going to benefit from being in line. And when I realized I could like stand up for someone and it would help them, 
and kind of take the, the brunt of things, I think I just kind of, it just really spoke to me that that was what you're supposed to do. Yeah, I, I didn't really think too much of it, but that's probably where it started, 15, 16. And mm. then um, 24-ish, 25-ish, when I was really going full speed ahead with a mag- print magazine that I had and, and a blog that I had, it was just, uh, it was there's no turning back. And now today you're, I mean, you're doing the same thing that you did in, you know, in your high school bubble now in a, in a much bigger landscape with a much larger platform. Do you ever feel a fear of like, oh, no, I can't be as direct or as open anymore? I, I don't think you have based on what I've seen, but I'm curious if how, how do you navigate that if those feelings do come up? I definitely, um, everything is very thought out. I think people might not think that if they follow me online, they may think that I just say everything I think. And I definitely make sure that I feel that I'm not hurting anyone by saying what I think is right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because if it were, if it were just me, oh, it would be on. (laughs) Like it would just be on, but I have 135 or so portfolio companies, which means maybe 250 to 300 founders, uh, their employees. I have, I'm not so much concerned about investor sentiment. Um, there, we have dozens of investors, even though we have this small pot of capital, uh, but they knew, I told them what they were getting themselves into. So I'm not so, you know, and I question some of my investors publicly and been known to do that. Mm-hmm. I just, I want to have a do no harm policy. So I don't want to hurt anyone in, in, in what I do. Every once in a while, I will go to say something and I'll say, and I'll think, man, Twitter isn't ready for this because I can have <laughs> this conversation here yeah. and the nuance of it would be picked up and you, we could even argue and all of that. And mm-hmm. it would be some level of respect but when you put it out on on Twitter, somehow it just turns into something that it just there. Are, I mean, I risk being called fat and stupid and racial slurs and uh, homophobic slurs by just saying that the sky is blue when someone mm-hmm. else may think it's green that day. Mm-hmm. So when I really put thought into when I really have something to say, I know the moment I push pu- publish that there's going to be an onslaught of everything, you know, mm. that you could think of. Sounds like a delightful community to participate in Twitter. <laughs> you know, it, it, it is, it is, it is very tough as we all probably know of anybody who's on social you get it, but also Twitter, I can't be too mad at it because it also is the reason I've met so many people who are in my life mm-hmm. and in my real life and in my you know, who've worked with me or, you know, I think it's a really, it's a strange beast. It's a really strange beast. For the community professionals who are, who are listening, I think we are all always trying to kind of figure out to what extent we should bring our voice into our work. Our jobs are to build community, especially recently. There's been a lot of discussion around, you know, do you make a statement about Black Lives Matter or anti-racism in your community. Um, And a lot of community professionals don't necessarily feel like they're in a position to make that statement, whether that's because like, you know, they can't speak for the rest of their company or they just don't necessarily feel like they're in a position of power or maybe they're afraid of the backlash that might come out of a community from the members who disagree and want to yell some bullshit like all lives matter or something. Um, 
what, what advice do you have for community professionals uh, for kind of finding their voice and, and I guess finding the bravery to use it? I'll say what someone said to me about, I can't remember if it was a year, probably a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. This woman is Muslim and it was after several Muslim people were, um, I'm saying it wrong, Muslim, um, was, were slaughtered at their house of worship in New Zealand, I believe. And I had posted, you know, tweeted about it, sort of retweeted, you know, things I saw. I watched it, of course, at home. I'd watched it and just been so sad. And and she worked, at the time, she was working for Backstage at my, my company and my fund. She was, uh, her name is Anissa, and she was in London, is in London, and she was working there. And she said, in a slack to me and to everyone, but to me directly, your silence is deafening. And I thought I was doing an okay job because I did retweet and I did feel it. The moment she said that, I realized, let me just put myself in her shoes right now. She's in a lot of pain. This is real to her and this is important to her and it's worth more than a retweet without much else from her uh, employer. So I got online. I first apologized to her in Slack. I said that anything, any silence from backstage was my fault. I then said, you know, please let me know what you need from us and we'll do the rest. I also said on, on uh, social, I, I gave more of an opinion because you know I have one. I have an opinion about most things. So I gave that un, <laughs> unfiltered about what happened. And it was, it was just the right thing to do. There was no question. There was no um, questioning of her, of her pain. And there was no question that I had not done well enough in her opinion. So that's what I'll say to anyone um, that is kind of struggling with it. Your silence is deafening. You may feel like you're taking the safer route so that you don't hurt, hurt anyone, you don't ruffle feathers, you don't lose out on sales, you don't upset people who may have a different opinion. You may have the most, uh, the, the, the right intention, but I have to tell you, there's this person who, who I almost adore, like I've become a fan of his, mm-hmm. and he said nothing, nothing about Black Lives Matter, nothing about a man being murdered on television. And he still kind of went along with his day and and made his sales and did his pitch and had everything automated and never once, not even for a day, took a day to black out or anything. And I will never look at him the same because the truth is, if something had happened to his family, if something has happened to white people every, every moment, anytime that happens, I'm the first person who will stand up for that and admit when I'm wrong and not doing enough. So that's what we, I think, I'm not speaking for every black person, don't make that mistake, but I think that acknowledging that this is tough and that you don't know exactly what to do and that you want to be there for anyone in your community who needs you, mm-hmm. but you're not going to tax them and pepper them with questions and make them your uh, teacher all of a sudden because we're exhausted. Yeah but that you're that you care 
that you give a damn. I think that is how you handle it. And yes, you may have a few people who who burn your Nikes, <laughs> their Nikes, because, oh, that's really hurting you. You know, you may have a few people who are like, I'm no longer part of your community because you believe that black lives matter. <laughs> did you really want them in part of your community? Or did you just suss out a few bad eggs? I think you just did a free diagnostic of your community. You kind of brought up an interesting topic there as well with, you know, really thinking about who's in your community and who, and the kind of community you want to create and the impact it can have. I, I think like making a statement was, was kind of like the table stakes for a lot of people and a lot of brands. It's like, we stand with Black Lives Matter. Awesome. Um, then of course, as we know, like where is, is there real action to follow that up and what are they doing to actually show that in, in their day-to-day work and their day-to-day practices and their policies and their companies. And so I guess what, what are the things that community builders could be doing? Um, and I know I'm asking you for advice, but I did ask for permission to ask for advice. <laughs> um, and so what advice do you have to go past like, okay, we've said something, we have a great uh, you know, policy that says we're we're diverse and inclusive and we welcome everybody in our community. These kinds of table stakes things, what can community builders do to actually have a community that's, that's diverse, that's inclusive, and even take it farther to be uh, anti-racist in the impact that the community can have? Well, there are certainly people who answer those questions for a living and are much more articulate about it than I am and have much more a broader sense of it than I do. I think yeah. just in general... I just don't trust pledges. I was even involved in in helping to craft one for Los Angeles uh, a year or two ago. And I just don't trust pledges. Pledges don't do much for me, right? Um, I think you go beyond the statement. You go beyond the pledge if you truly want to. Now, if you don't want to, you're not doing anybody any favors by faking that. Like You're only doing yourself a favor. So don't pat yourself on the back if you're doing it because you think you're supposed to. But if you truly want to and you feel and you've made, um, you know, the error that a lot of people have made, which is they don't start with a with a diverse community or they don't start with their team. You know, there are a lot of people come to me. They're like five white men and they'll come to me like two or three years into their company and they'll say, what do we do? How do we fix this? It's really tough to fix it there. It's not impossible. Um, but if you're in that position and you're you're wanting to do that, I, I think. I see so many companies like and organizations spend more money on hiring the diversity and inclusion person, mm-hmm. the one person in a, in a team of however many, who is usually a woman of color or a white woman when they're really, really trying to get on my nerves. I'm married to a white woman, I'll, I'll say that. Um, But when they're really trying to really get on my nerves, they'll have their diversity inclusion person be a white woman, which is not quite it, right? But they'll spend more money on the headhunting for that, on the promotion of that, the fact that they did it, than on literally looking at their own teams and saying, where can we promote within? Where can we give more resources and capital to the teams? Like, it just depends on how big this Company, I speak more company-wise, uh, you know, wise, but it just depends on how big the organization is. Where can we put more resources so that the people who are already in place mm-hmm. are, are set up to win rather than to succeed rather than fail? They're set up to be more than just a people manager, an HR, or a 
a special project that warms everybody's heart. I see that. And so it really like using that same savviness that got you to where you are when you look at this, like all of a sudden, even someone like Peter Thiel, who is like, you know, if you think about it, he, he put the first dollars into Facebook that made it what it is. He put early money into SpaceX. He put this and that. He, you could, if you were not me, call him a genius. But even he has said, I don't know how to fix diversity uh, when it comes to <laughs> companies. Like, I don't know how to do it. Why? Is it because he doesn't want to, you think? Oh, I it's know. Just not a priority. That, that's probably, a, probably a, a bad example because I just can't stand him. But yeah, <laughs> I know he doesn't. I know he right. doesn't. But a lot of people, I just think it's laziness. Like, I feel like I'll, I'll go into all these like rooms with these guys and they're, they're millionaires or even billionaires and they figured so much out. They have hacked so much. They have gotten so far, but they can't figure this out. I don't know how to do it. Where are, these, where are these black people you speak of that can code? <laughs> we, we talked right before the interview about um, like hustle culture. And I find, I always find it really funny how like the same people who are like, you have to hustle. Like the key to success is to work really hard, bust your ass, make your way. And then it's like, cool. Like, how about you hire diverse staff? And they're like, I don't know how. Like, they didn't I don't apply. know her. <laughs> they become a ride carry real fast. <laughs> I don't apply. know her. And all of a sudden, like, no, I'm not going to hustle for 